Hello, this is Peggy Joyce Ruth. Welcome to our podcast and hope you enjoy this teaching. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org. For the past 10 years, I've observed so much needless pain in the lives of so many Christians that has come primarily from a misunderstanding of God's character. God has been blamed with a lot of things that are not His doing, things that He hasn't done. So this teaching can be of great benefit. Now I call this misconceptions about God's character. Now this is one of my very favorite teachings because I firmly believe that we cannot go on with God until we get this truth firmly settled in our mind. Now I want you to turn to John chapter 1 verse 1. This is going to be our foundational scripture. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now I want you to catch that it says that the Word was God. And then down in verse 14, it says the Word, the Word that was God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice it was full of truth. Okay, now this is what I'm wanting us to see. That Word that was God... 2,000 years ago became flesh and came down to live with us on earth so that we could know the truth. And it was only after the living word came to live with us, to dwell among us, that we could know the truth. That's what it's saying here in verse 17. It says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. See, the law was never intended to show us the full truth. Jesus Christ came that we might know the truth. That law was never given for that purpose, for that reason. In verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He, Jesus Christ, has explained Him. See, the only way that we're ever going to have an accurate explanation of the Father is through Jesus Christ. Now, if we could just get these few scriptures clearly in our thinking, it would settle any misconception that we'd ever have about God. For us to come to the place where we realize, number one, that the Word was with God from the beginning and was God. Number two, the Word took on a body and came to live among us in order that, number three, we could be taught the truth about God. See, grace and truth were realized through Jesus. That's what he's saying in verse 18. He was the explanation of the Father. Okay, now I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. I want us to see that this same truth is reiterated throughout the entire Bible, throughout the entire New Testament. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, it says Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory. Jesus is the exact representation of His nature. Read that again. He is the radiance of His Father's glory. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father's nature. In other words, He's he's the replica of the Father. When anyone ever wanted to know about God, the Bible never pointed them to the Old Testament. Never did it say, go look in the Old Testament and this is going to give you an accurate picture of God. No, it always pointed to Jesus. Jesus explained the Father. Old Testament prophets didn't give us a vivid picture of God. That's what it's saying in 1 Corinthians 13 when it says prophecy is like seeing through a glass dimly. Have you ever looked through a cloudy glass? Okay, you might be able to make some images out that were inside the house, but you never get a crystal clear picture. 
Well, Old Testament prophecy and, and the law was never intended to give us an, an exact picture of God. Jesus Christ was sent to give us that clear picture. Yet in spite of that fact that the Bible clearly tells us that only Jesus is the exact picture of God, man will still point to portions of the Old Testament and draw conclusions about what he thinks God is like. See, that's why people get into so much trouble in their theology many times. You've seen people who love God dearly, but nothing ever seems to work right in their life. Well, so often you'll find that they're confused about what God is like. And what they do, they credit God with things that are not coming from God. You know, from the time of Abraham down through the ages, there has been a progressive revelation of God. He would reveal just a little bit more and a little bit more of his character as time went on until the great and final revealing of himself in Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus then said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. See, the only Bible that Jesus had was the Old Testament at that time. And he didn't say, if you study these Old Testament scriptures, you're going to know what God's like. No. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So as long as you look to the Old Covenant to understand God's character, you're going to have a limited revelation of God. If you take Old Testament scriptures at face value here and there and you pick out a scripture and you say, oh, this gives me a picture of the Father, you're going to get a misconception about his character. The true character of God has to be settled in our mind before we can go on with God. Now, a lot of people think they have it settled in their mind. They'll say, yes, I understand that God's not the one dealing me misery. I have it settled that healing is a part of the atonement. And they appear to be on firm footing theologically. But I've seen this happen time and time again when God will turn some evil around in their life and bring good out of it, just like he did in Genesis 50-20 with Joseph and the brothers. And this person who has seen God turn some evil around in their life and bring good, they'll become double-minded and they'll begin to think, well, maybe God did send that sickness or, or maybe he did send that calamity or at least maybe he allowed it because after all, look at all the good that's come out of it. And they began to waver, and this, the old end justifies the means theory begins to kick in. Yes, God will take what was meant for evil, and he will bring good out of it if we trust him and if we love him. But it doesn't mean that he sent the evil, and it doesn't mean that he planned it so that he could allow the evil. See, this is Satan's trick to keep us double-minded and keep us hesitant about what we know about God based on the character of Jesus. Our becoming double-minded in this area is a part of Satan's plan because, see, the enemy is waiting for an opportunity to send something bad that we will accept as coming from God simply because we think God sent it. Because, see, Satan knows that if he can get us in that place, he can bring destruction in our life. That's what he's waiting for. I cannot begin to tell you how important it is for us to have our mind totally renewed to what the Word of God teaches about the character of God. See, when we understand the truth, we're going to be set free. But if we misunderstand and misinterpret God's Word, it'll put us in bondage. That's why the Word of God says if you know the truth, it's the, that truth that's going to set you free. Now, every scripture in the Bible has to be studied in the light of the overall Word. And if any scripture tends to contradict the overall message of the word, or if it contradicts the character of God shown in Christ Jesus, then we're misinterpreting that portion of scripture. Now you've all seen in the Old Testament where it said that God sent a plague, or, or God destroyed, or there was a pestilence that came from God. 
Now that used to really confuse me and I always thought, Lord, it, it looks like there was a different God in the Old Testament from the one that's in the New Testament. And I never could understand and I, I just kept crying out for understanding. I kept saying, Lord, your word says you change not, but it looks like you've changed. Now I want to show you today what God began revealing to me. My objective, my objective for this teaching today is for us to know the truth about God. And when we do, that truth is going to set us free. Because see, until this particular issue is settled, number one, we're going to find that our trust will be limited. See, it's hard to trust someone when you're not sure what he might do to you. And number two, it's going to hinder your boldness in taking authority over the enemy because if you're not sure whether something's coming from God or whether it's coming from the enemy, then you're certainly not going to take authority over it. If you think, well, this might be coming from God, you're not going to take authority. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 8. The writer of Hebrews is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting an Old Testament prophecy where God himself compared the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and shows the difference between the two. And so in chapter 8, verse 6, God says that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant which is enacted on better promises. So immediately we know that, that this is a better covenant. The New Covenant is a better covenant. And in verse 8, from the Old Testament, God prophesied and he said, Behold, the days are coming when I'm going to effect a new covenant. Verse 9, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand. He said they were just children under the Old Covenant and I had to lead them by the hand. But in verse 10, for this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I'm going to put my law in their minds and I'm going to write that law on their heart. Okay, in the new covenant now, the things of God are imprinted in our heart and in our mind. And he says in this new covenant, I'm going to be their God and they'll be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Now that word know means to be acquainted with or to be aware of. He said, under the old covenant, they were just aware of me. They, were, they had an acquaintance. They knew about me. But he said, under that new covenant, all of them shall know me. Now that word, K-N-O-W, that one under the new covenant through Jesus means that we can know him intimately. We can discern him clearly. It means to experience his true character. It also means to gaze at him with wide open eyes as though you're gazing at something remarkable. So he said, they're not going to know me. They're not just going to be acquainted with me like they were under the old covenant. But he said, in this new covenant, from the least to the greatest, they are going to know me intimately. And then in verse 13, he says, a new covenant. And when he said a new covenant, he has made the first covenant obsolete. For whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is getting ready to disappear. So God himself said, I'm going to make the old covenant obsolete by giving you this new covenant. He's clearly saying here that the people of the old covenant on a whole knew only about God. But under the New Testament, he said, they can truly know me. They can know what I'm like through Christ Jesus. They can know me intimately. They can discern me clearly. They can experience my true character. They can truly gaze at me with wide open eyes as though they're gazing at something remarkable. Praise God, we live under a new covenant. That old covenant is obsolete, but we live under a new and a better covenant enacted on better promises.
Now, he compared the old covenant to the new covenant. And he's saying here, don't look to the old covenant to know me. They only had a knowledge about me for the most part. But under this new covenant, you can know what I'm really like. God couldn't have said it any more clearly than he did right here in this prophecy from Jeremiah that was printed again. It was so important that he had the writer of Hebrews put it again in the New Testament. Okay, I want you to turn now to Ezekiel chapter 28. Now this passage of scripture lets us know where evil comes from. Now we're just going to hit the high spots. You can study it on your own. But this is referring to Lucifer. Lucifer is personified as the king of Tyre. And Ezekiel 28, starting with verse 14, God said, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and God said, I placed you there. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And then by the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Okay, now this is very important to realize that Lucifer was blameless when he was created until he sinned. And then in verse 17, God said your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Okay, pride came in. And you corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. Notice what happened to Lucifer's wisdom. When sin came in, his wisdom was corrupted. It became perverted. And in verse 18, by the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade. I looked that up and it meant in his business dealings. It also said that he peddled that merchandise in the unrighteousness of your trade. You profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you, and it has consumed you. I want you to underline that. That's so important. I have brought the fire from the midst of you. That sin that was on the inside of Lucifer finally turned, and it was that that consumed him. Now, God didn't create sin. He didn't create Lucifer with a sinful nature. When Lucifer opened himself up to pride and when sin came into his being, and then he peddled that merchandise, that sin began to spread. Even a third of the angels fell with him. And the very evil itself finally turned and consumed him. Now, when we stay in sin, it's really not even Satan who ultimately consumes and brings death. The sin itself, when a person yields to temptation and falls into sin, the sin itself consumes and destroys and brings death. Now, that's why God in His love is continually warning us in His Word and trying to keep us from partaking of evil because God knows that evil will eventually turn and literally consume the person because there's a law of sowing and reaping in effect. And that's why verse 18 says that it was the fire on the inside of Lucifer that consumed him. The sin or the evil that's in, on the inside of a person, whether it be pride or lust or greed or selfishness, it will eventually turn and consume. It's a spiritual law. It works as surely as gravity works. Now, I said earlier that under the old covenant, God was progressively revealing a little bit more and a little bit more about himself. Well, by the same token, the people under the Old Covenant also had a very limited revelation about Satan. In fact, for the most part, they only knew one's power force, and that was God. And since they were only aware of God's power for the most part, God was given credit for everything supernatural, the evil as well as the good. If it was supernaturally good, God got credit. If it was supernaturally bad, God got credit. Angela had a Bible professor at Howard Payne who said it this way. He said, the Hebrew mind only knew one power, 
And we know they did. They were constantly saying, one God. So the Hebrew mind only knew one power. So whatever happened in the supernatural realm in the Old Testament was credited to God because they only knew one power. On a very few occasions, the Holy Spirit revealed the source of the demonic realm in the Old Testament, but on a whole, it was God that was given credit. Let me give you some examples. In the Old Testament, you're going to find a few places where it says that an evil spirit was sent from God. Okay, we have to interpret that in light of the overall word. Remember, they only knew one power then. But Jesus then cleared it up in the New Testament when he very plainly said that a house divided cannot stand. Remember, we always have to look to Jesus to see what God is like. They had accused Jesus of casting out evil spirits by the power of Beelzebub. And he said if Beelzebub cast out his own evil spirits, it would be a house divided and it couldn't stand. Well, by the same token, in the Old Testament, God couldn't send evil spirits and then later through Jesus cast out those evil spirits. God wouldn't cast out of us what he had put on us. He only takes off of us what Satan puts on us. Now, they recognized that evil power that came on Saul in the Old Testament, and they knew it was a supernatural power. So they gave God credit because it was supernatural. In the book of Jonah, they talked about a destructive storm coming from God. Yet under the New Covenant, we know that Jesus rebuked the storm. See, God didn't change characters. They just recognized one power back then. God couldn't be the one sending the storm and the one rebuking the storm at the same time. It would be a house divided. Now, I want you to look in Psalm 94, verse 20. This is a very important scripture. It says, Shall a throne of destruction that devises evil have fellowship with you, O Lord? No. Shall a throne of destruction that devises evil have fellowship with you? See, the Old Testament writer here recognized that a throne of destruction could never be in alliance with God. Some people think, well, okay, maybe it's not coming from God, but God just uses Satan at times. No, God doesn't use Satan to do his dirty work. He's not unequally yoked. You've heard it said that Satan's not on God's payroll, and he's not. So it's not God that's using Satan to do his dirty work. A throne of destruction, one that devises evil, can never have fellowship with God. Do you remember when Jesus would do a miracle and then he would say, don't tell anybody yet because it's not the proper time for me to be revealed? Okay, he said that several times in the New Testament. Well, by the same token, in the Old Testament, it wasn't yet the proper time to reveal the enemy. See, he couldn't be revealed until the New Testament because Jesus had not yet overcome the enemy and bought back the authority that Adam lost. So for the most part, you just don't see that much about the enemy in the Old Testament. He was mentioned very few times by name in the Old Testament. They knew very little about the enemy because they were powerless against him anyway. Their total protection was in staying up close to God through obedience. Well, we do the same thing with our children. The Lord showed me this illustration. He said if there was a killer loose in the city, we wouldn't frighten a little child by telling him about the killer because the child would be powerless against him anyway. You would simply give that child some rules to go by. You'd say, come straight home from school, don't talk to strangers, don't get in the car with strangers. And their obedience would become their protection. 
Well, that basically was what God did. We read earlier that God called the people under the old covenant children. He saw them as children. They were powerless against this unseen enemy. But see, God gave them some rules, and as they were obedient, it became their protection from an enemy that they actually knew very little, if anything, about. But as they were obedient, that law protected them. They were protected. So now today, because people tend to look to the Old Covenant, which is a limited revelation of God's character, instead of looking to Jesus, who is the exact representation of the Father, who is the revealed truth about God, there's confusion many times. And they're trying to decide, well, is this from God or is this not from God? What's from God and what's not from God? Let me give you some examples that'll demonstrate their limited understanding. Now, these two scriptures are so important. I want you to take note. I want you to look first at 2 Samuel 24.1. Now, God had told David not to number the people. And then here in the 24th chapter, verse 1, it says, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and the anger of God incited David against them to say, Go number Israel. Now that's very confusing. God had told David not to number the people, and here it's saying that God incited him now to go number them. Well, that can sound very contradictory. But when you look closely enough, even in the Old Testament, you'll find the truth. If you'll look out in your cross-reference, it'll tell you to go to 1 Chronicles 21.1. I want you to mark those two scriptures together. Go to 1 Chronicles. This is another account of the exact same story. The writer of Samuel wrote the story, and, and the writer of Chronicles wrote the same story. But look in 1 Chronicles 21.1. It says, then Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Okay, this is one of the few times in the Old Testament when Satan was actually called Satan. Now, the writer of 1 Samuel knew it was a supernatural power that incited David, so he gave God credit. Later, however, the writer of Chronicles telling about the same incident was given the revelation by the Holy Spirit that it was indeed Satan, not God, who had incited David to the, do the numbering. And you say, well, are you trying to say that the Bible isn't true when the Old Testament says that God sent the evil? No, I'm not saying that the Bible isn't true. I'm saying that there was not a complete revelation of the character of God in the Old Testament. That doesn't make the Old Testament an error. They just didn't have the full truth if they stopped at any point along the way. They had just been given that much revelation, and the revelation wasn't complete at that point because Christ hadn't come. And that's why we're told that we can only see the full picture in Christ Jesus. See, the Old is by the New explained. The Old Testament is by the New Testament explained. Another example is in Job 1.16. It says the fire of God from heaven smote Job's possessions. But if you keep reading, you're going to find in Job chapter 2 verse 7 that it says that Satan went out and smote Job. See, when God is blamed for sending evil, if you'll search the overall truth of the Word of God, you're going to find the truth and you're going to find that it's not God sending the evil. Now, later you can look up Exodus chapter 12. This is when the children of Israel were about to leave the land of Egypt. 
And they were told to put blood on the doorpost. And in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, it said, when God saw the blood on the doorpost, he did not come in to destroy well, that sounds like God was the one doing the destroying. But if you look on down in that same chapter, Exodus 12, verse 23, it says, when God saw the blood on the doorpost, he did not allow the destroyer to come in and destroy the people. God's not the destroyer. 1 Corinthians 10, 10 in the New Testament says, don't grumble and be destroyed by the destroyer. It's talking about the enemy. God and Satan can't both be the destroyer. Jesus said in John 10, 10, it's the thief that comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Did Satan and God change places from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Does God destroy in the Old Testament and Satan destroy in the New Testament? No, no. And we're going to find that even in the Old Testament, uh, the Holy Spirit would give them glimpses of knowing who the destroyer was. Look at Isaiah 21, 2. Isaiah said, I have been given a harsh vision. God has shown me a vision. He said, the treacherous one is still the one that's dealing treacherously, and the destroyer is still the one that's destroying. And then on further in Isaiah's book, in Isaiah chapter 33, Isaiah 33 verse 1, it says, Woe to you, O destroyer! while you were not destroyed, and he who is treacherous, while others did not deal treacherously with him. As soon as you have finished destroying, you will be destroyed. We know it's not talking about God. God's not going to be destroyed. As soon as you, as you have finished destroying, you will be destroyed. As soon as you cease dealing treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you. Okay, Satan is the destroyer. He is the one that deals treacherously. God and Satan can't both be the, the destroyer, and they have not traded places. And if you'll look closely, even the Old Testament spells out the truth, yet it was not always clear in their thinking. And because of their limited revelation and their limited knowledge, many times they gave God credit for the destruction. You know, even 2 Samuel 14, 14 tells us that God does not take away life, but he's the one that's planning ways for the banished one not to be cast out. Now, part of the limited understanding of God's character in the Old Testament is because of the Hebrew verb translation. How many of you have a New American Standard Bible? Okay, the producers of the New American Standard Bible make this statement in the front of their Bible. It says the logical sequences of tenses in the Hebrew still remains a puzzling factor in the translation. It still remains a puzzling factor. Okay, in other words, the translation of Hebrew tenses is still a puzzle. See, the translation of the Hebrew verbs is complex. There are tenses and there's moods. There's causative mood, permissive moods, and many biblical scholars agree that the Hebrew verbs were written by the Old Testament Bible writers in the permissive mood, and yet when they were translated into English, they were translated in the causative mood, which totally alters the meaning. A good example is in Deuteronomy 28 where the curses are listed. It's written that the curses were permitted by God because of sin. But see, it's translated in the causative, leaving the impression that it was God who sent the curses. See, those curses came as a result of the law of sowing and reaping. Now, I'm going to give you a very good example of the law of sowing and reaping in the Old Testament. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 7. This is probably one of the the best examples of the law of sowing and reaping from the Old Testament. Okay, in Psalm 7, starting with verse 12, it says, If a man does not repent, okay, that's saying that someone is operating in sin. 
It says, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. Now, this is, this is not talking about God here. There was no capitalization in the original text. So it's talking about the man that does not repent. He has prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness. We know it's not talking about God. God does not travail in wickedness. He conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood, the man who does not repent. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out. He has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. Okay, that's the law of sowing and reaping. He dug a pit, he fell in the hole that he dug. Because he was in sin, his own mischief returned on his own head. See, it's the law of sowing and reaping. That's where destruction comes from. It comes from sin. Now, it may not necessarily be a sin that you yourself committed, but it comes from the harvest of sin that's in the world. Okay, I want us to think for just a minute how Jesus described his father. See, a son should be able to describe his father better than anyone else. And in Matthew 5, verse 45, Jesus said, The Father causes the Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, the unbelievable thing about God is that He is kind to men who don't deserve it. He shows mercy to ungrateful men. But you know what we've done? We've tried to create God in our image. We've tried to create God in our imagination. We've tried to make God fit into the image that we have of Him rather than allowing Him to let us see the truth through Christ Jesus. Now, we also have a distorted view many times from what we've been taught in the past, and that's why our mind has to be renewed. 1 John 1, 5 says that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. See, God has no evil in Him. He is light. There's no darkness in Him. Calamity and lack and sickness and destruction... All these things equal darkness. You know, when man talks about God destroying or God sending calamity or, or God taking away, we can know that God's not the one sending it because there's no evil in him to send. There's no evil. There's no darkness in that light. Then some would say, well, what about God's discipline? Maybe the bad things that happen to me, maybe the, that's just because of God's discipline, like a father spanking his son. God is a spirit, and later I want you to look up the scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16 because it tells us that God's discipline, some of your translations will say God's training, but that word training and discipline, they're the same Greek word. They're in, in Hebrews chapter 12 when it talks about discipline. That's the same Greek word that's training in 2 Timothy 3.16. But it says God disciplines or he trains us by the scriptures. He trains us, he disciplines us with his word, not by sending calamity on his children. Now, if we're his children, God will discipline us. God is a spirit, and he disciplines us in our spirit with the word of God. He disciplines us in the same manner as a good earthly father disciplines his children. Now, there always has been and there always will be a penalty for sin. That's why he told the lame man to sin no more or a worse thing would come on him. Jesus knew that when a person stayed in sin, that consequences would come. But it's not God sending the evil. The very evil from the sin itself will turn and consume. You know, you've seen people and they keep bitterness in them or, or unforgiveness or hate, and pretty soon that turns and it consumes them. 
A person who stays in sexual sin, many times a venereal disease will come and it will turn and consume. You know, many people say that the great tribulation is God pouring out his wrath on mankind. But in reality, when you look at it closely, the tribulation is man's own penalty, the sin coming back on himself because they didn't repent. God sent Jesus so that no man would have to die. He said, I came not to destroy, but to save. But you know, when man refuses God's way out, the penalty will come, but it's not from God. The penalty is man's own sin turning back on him. Now, I'm certainly not minimizing the consequences of sin. I'm simply wanting us to discern where the evil is coming from. The wages of sin is death, but the, the penalty is not coming from God. God in his mercy will hold a person back from destruction whenever possible, but he's not going to violate their will. So there comes a time when a person is turned loose to the choices that they've made. You know, sometimes God does hold up his hand and he says, no more. And at that point, we're turned over to the sin that we persist in staying in. I'm going to show you a good example of that in Romans. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 verse 21. It says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, and they did not give thanks. Down in verse 24. Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts. Gave them over to impurity. Verse 25, it says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Okay, when they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, verse 26 says, for that reason, God finally gave them over to the degrading passions. In verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God finally gave them over to a depraved mind. See, it's kind of like a, a tug of war. God gives us a free will, and he holds us back from the destruction until we make our choice. But he doesn't destroy us. He finally gives us over to the choice that we make. You know, for example, you'll see many times in the Old Testament where it says that God gave Israel into the hands of the enemy. Okay, if you read ahead of that, you'll find that God had pleaded with them to repent. He kept holding them back. But when they refused to repent, they were finally turned loose to go their own way. And it was their own sin that put them into enemy territory. See, it's the law of sowing and reaping that governs the good as well as the evil. God created that law of sowing and reaping, but he created it to bring good in our life so that when we sowed good seed, it would bring back a harvest of good. But when man operates that law in the reverse, it's going to reap evil. There simply comes a time when man has persisted in his sin until he is totally out from under God's protection. And at that point then the evil is reversed and it turns and consumes the person. Just like we read in Ezekiel 28, the fire from Lucifer's midst finally turned and consumed him. The only evil that exists is that which evolves from sin, does not evolve from God. God has no sin. He has no evil. James 1.17 says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, and it comes down from the Father of lights, not darkness with whom there's no variation. God doesn't send good one time and evil the next. Now I want you to look at Luke 9 verse 54. Jesus was constantly trying to clear up their theology. He was trying to give them a fuller revelation of God. And Jesus and the disciples had been coming through the village of Samaria 
and the Samaritans had not received Jesus well. And so in verse 54, the disciples, James and John, when they had seen this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and just consume them all? See, they, they thought, well, well, we'll just kill them if they're not going to accept you. But look what Jesus says. This is so important. He turned and he rebuked them and he said, You do not know what kind of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but he came to save them. Okay, he was trying to give them a revelation of the character of God. God didn't come to destroy men's lives. He came to try to save them. Even in Matthew 5, verse 38, Jesus said, You've heard it said in the Old Covenant, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, love your enemies and do good. What is he saying here? Did the word change? Did God change? No. I, the Lord God, change not. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever, God says. Jesus was simply saying under the Old Covenant, they had a limited view of God's character. An eye for an eye was all they knew. But he said, now I'm revealing the true character of God to you. He said, God sends rain and sunshine on both the righteous and the unrighteous. Now a person is going to see God in one of two ways. He's either going to see God in the light of what is in himself, or he's going to see God by what he's been taught. Now our own character influences the way we see the character of God. Now I want you to look up 2 Samuel 22, 26 and Psalm 18, 25. These scriptures say that the kind will see God as a kind God. The pure will see God as a pure God and the blameless will see God as a blameless God. But it goes on to say that the perverted will see him as twisted. Now, God's not twisted, but it says if a person is perverted inside of his own thinking, he's going to see God as twisted. See, we have to get these things out of our computer, these things out of our mind that are wrong, and we've got to put truth in so that we can see God in the light of the true Word, in the light of His Son, Jesus Christ. If we're not pure in our heart, we're not going to see God as pure. And that's why it's so important to get into a love walk and begin to understand agape love. And as we do, the more we'll begin to see God as the God of love that He is. When we let purity dwell on the inside of us, then we're going to see His purity. Now the last scripture that I want you to look up is in Jeremiah 9 verse 24. You know, at times you'll hear people and they'll actually be boasting about some hardship that they say God sent to them to perfect them. Well, this can so easily turn into a pride, the, the pride of look what I'm able to endure for God. But see, God is very clearly telling us right here in Jeremiah what to boast about. Down in verse 24, it says, Let him who boasts boast of this. Okay, what are we to boast of? Let him boast that he understands and knows me. He's saying, I want you to really know me. If you want to boast about something, boast that you really, truly know me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in those things, declares the Lord. That's what he wants us to boast of that we know Him and that we know He exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness, boast in the fact that we know that He delights in those things. Now in the New Testament, Jesus had bought back the authority that Adam lost. And Jesus was getting ready to give that authority to the church. So all of a sudden, in the New Covenant, there was an explosion. 
Jesus and every New Testament writer began teaching boldly and openly about the enemy on practically every page of the New Testament. See, the proper time had finally come for the evil one to be clearly revealed. The time of revelation had come. And the reason was because the time of understanding spiritual warfare had come. The authority was going to be given to the church. So the truth about the enemy came to light. Jesus brought it to light. That's why he said in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It's not God, it's the thief. God and I have come to give you life and give it to you more abundantly. That is a perfect barometer. You can draw a line right down the center of the page and you can categorize everything that comes. If it steals from you, if it kills, if it destroys, it's coming from the thief. If it brings life and life abundantly, it's coming from God. Now, if we could ever get this one message settled once and for all, that God is good and in Him is no evil and no darkness, it would turn the world upside down. Satan has deceived us with his lies long enough. So when you find a scripture that makes God look like the bad guy, remember two rules. Number one, every scripture has to be interpreted in the light of the overall word. And number two, any picture of God that does not line up with the life of Jesus is not an accurate picture because Jesus is the exact replica of the Father. He came to explain the Father. So if there's a question concerning what would God do, don't look to the Old Testament. Don't look to somebody else's life. You don't know what's going on in their life. Look to Jesus. Did he ever take a life? Did he ever leave sickness on someone when they came to him for healing? Did he ever destroy? No. No. He said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Now, I'm going to end with an illustration that God gave to me. He said that God's character, his character, was like a sculptor, an artist, who chipped away at this big block of marble. See, at first you can't tell what the sculpture is going to look like. Well, that's what it was like in the Old Testament because they knew so little about God. But as the artist chips away, you began to see a little bit more and a little bit more. It's a gradual revelation of the complete work. And it's only after the artist has finished the work and presented it to the people that you're able to see and understand what the completed work of art is like. Okay, that's exactly what God did. He revealed a little more and a little more of himself through the Old Covenant. First of all, he revealed the fact that he was the Jehovah Jireh, and then the Jehovah Rapha, and then the Jehovah Nisi, and then the Shepherd, and on and on until the complete and final revelation in Christ Jesus. So anytime we look back to the Old Testament to find out what God is like, that would be like looking at a half-finished sculpture to determine what the finished work of art was going to look like. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to reveal to us your true character. Lord, I thank you that you sent Jesus to let us know that it is the thief that comes to steal, kill, and to destroy and that Christ Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Lord, I thank you that you are a good God. I thank you that you created the law of sowing and reaping so that when we sow good, it's going to bring back good. Father, forgive us when we've sown evil because we know, Lord, it's a law just exactly like gravity and when we put evil out, it's going to reap evil back. Now, Father, I thank you that you are a good God, that you love us, that you are patient and kind with us. Father, help us to understand you so that we will be able to stand up and boast that we know you 
and that we we know that you are a God who loves loving kindness and, and and that this is something that you take pleasure in father help us to declare to the world what you're really like so that people will want to turn away from their sin and turn away from uh, reaping a, a, a harvest of evil father I thank you that we can declare that you are Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And as we come into your kingdom, that you pour abundantly upon us righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ is the exact replica of you. Father, we thank you that he did come to explain you. We thank you, Lord, that he came to reveal the total truth. And we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please share this teaching with anyone you think it would minister to. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org.